Hello, welcome to Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan here in Victoria, BC. In this program, we all discover jazz old and new together. We'll listen to a wide variety of jazz styles and I'll present different topics, giving ideas as to what we can listen for to enhance our experience. Thanks to Peterborough Independent Podcasters for hosting this podcast. For the next 60 minutes, Discovering Jazz. From 1978 to the beginning of 1983, Time Life put out a series called The Giants of Jazz. It was a total of 28 three-record sets that you could subscribe, subscribe to and have them mailed to your door. I subscribed, and I still have them, and they were a very important introduction to great older jazz. Each album, except one, features one artist with a great write-up on the artist by very knowledgeable jazz scholars, as well as extensive notes on each tune. I'm going to put together a few podcasts featuring some of these three record sets, starting part one today. And because none of them are Canadian, and I like to ensure I play at least one Canadian artist each program, I'll try to find one Canadian each time who, well, not a giant compared to those big names, was probably a giant within their own region. When I first listened to the records, I put a check mark by the tunes I particularly liked, and hopefully that will help me a bit in deciding which tune from the 40 or so selections that I choose. Starting with Volume 1, Louis Armstrong. Chris Albertson's 30 pages of notes start out trying to convince us that Louis Armstrong was more important to jazz than Beethoven was to classical music or Shakespeare was to drama. I'll play two tracks off the album set, starting with the latest track from 1950, the last one recorded that was on the album. It's a not often performed Rodgers and Hammerstein composition, with Louis Armstrong on trumpet and vocal, Jack Teagarden on trombone, Barney Bigard clarinet, Earl Hines on piano, Arvel Shaw bass, and Cozy Cole drums. That's for me. Lovely 
morning I remember And you were quick to agree You wanted to walk And I nodded my head And some pretty said Thanks for me I left you standing on the stars The day's adventures were through There's nothing for me but to dream in my heart And to dream in my heart Adventures were through. Babe, there's nothing for me but the dream in my heart. I am the dream in my heart. Louis started singing on some of his recordings in 1925, and by 1930, most of his records featured his vocals as well as his trumpet. Some say that his singing actually came first, and that his trumpet style grew out of his singing. Earl Hines reported that other singers would stick their heads out of windows trying to catch cold so that they could sing like Louis. 
but it really was his horn playing that changed the face of jazz. Miles Davis stated that you can't play anything on a horn that Louis hasn't played. This next recording I'll play is described as Louis's first virtuoso masterpiece. It's from 1926. He takes the spot with a lead, but it's really a solo. The tune, written by Louis Armstrong, was originally rejected by OK Records because it was so different from anything else he had done. But here it is, from 1926, Cornet Chop Suey, Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five. Armstrong was the artist featured in the first Time Life Giants of Jazz records, and it was mailed to my door sometime in 1978. I was living in Mayo, Yukon at the time. 
The last of the records, number 28, was Bessie Smith, sent in early 1983 when I was in Whitehorse. I'm not sure why Time Life chose Bessie Smith as one of the singular giants of jazz, since she was mostly a pure blues singer with a single piano backup, only later recording with jazz backup. She didn't really improvise all that much, and her singing was pretty straight ahead, even though it was powerful. And I'm not sure that many people could tolerate listening to 41 Bessie Smith recordings at one sitting. So having these tunes on one three-record set might not be all that popular, but maybe it would have suited her as everything she did was big. She was a big woman and had a big voice, and her temper, her drinking, and her gift-giving was big. In the 1920s, she was making huge sums of money through uh, some very popular shows, shows that had choruses, costumes, props, everything. It must have been quite the spectacle and probably hard to capture on record. Even Bessie Smith's death was big. It involved a massive highway accident in 1937, and Downbeat magazine spread a false story that she died due to racism, that a white hospital wouldn't admit her. Downbeat later retracted that story after her attending surgeon at the Black Hospital in Clarksdale, Mississippi, the closest hospital to where the accident occurred, stated that no white hospital had been asked to admit her and no hospital turned her away. But the rumor persists. Here is a recording from when she was at the peak of her career, 1925. It includes Louis Armstrong on cornet and Fred Longshaw playing a harmonium or reed organ, St. Louis Blues, apparently the first blues composition ever actually written down, composed and published by W.C. Handy in 1913. Bessie Smith treats it very seriously, starting mournful, then really exploding on the very last note. Thank you. 
The second volume of the Time Life series will be one that will be a challenge for me to select only two tunes. It's Duke Ellington, the most prolific and one of the greatest composers of the 20th century. And you know, every time I see my three-record Time Life Duke Ellington set, it it triggers a memory um, that uh, I was living in Mayo, Yukon at the time. I'd only been there a few months working as a probation officer, and uh, the album just arrived at my door in the mail, and I opened it and had it on the kitchen table, and then before I could play it, I had a visitor. It was the daughter of the head of the local government there who, um, I guess, uh, was coming to sort of say hello and to meet me and uh, whatever. So talked for a little while and then she left and I looked at the kitchen table and the record was gone. Totally disappeared. She had stolen it. Now, why she would have wanted to steal my Duke Ellington album, I don't know. But uh, being new in the town and didn't want to uh, ruffle feathers, I, I didn't say anything. But uh, they had a deal with Time Life where you could always order a second album for half price. So I just simply reordered it and uh, it came again. So the album that I have here is that reordered album of Duke Ellington. Now, from reading the notes, I learned that both his parents were musical, but young Edward Ellington showed no interest as a child or no ability and gave up the piano lessons his parents encouraged him to take. He was more interested in playing baseball. He started dabbling in music in high school, and once, when confined to the house due to a cold, he started plinking on the piano, and his first composition was born— soda fountain rag and when he discovered later that beautiful women liked to assemble on the left side of the keyboard when he was playing well that was motivation for him to keep playing he stated i ain't been no athlete since i'll play something from 1940 a tune that he wrote called coco it shows the startling dissonance he was using even that early and how he was able to get a collective sound while honoring each instrumentalist's distinct voice. Some of the standout contributions here are Juan Tizol and Tricky Sam Nanton on trombone, bassist Jimmy Blanton, who introduced walking bass to jazz, Ellington's piano frail fills, Harry Carney's saxophone, and the percussion of Sonny Greer. Here is Coco, Duke Ellington and his famous orchestra from 
One of Ellington's most classic tunes was, was written in 15 minutes while waiting for his mother to finish cooking dinner. It started off as Dreamy Blues, then was changed to Mood Indigo. His first performance was with most of the musicians he always played with, but here he named them the Jungle Band. One remarkable thing about this performance is the sound that he achieved in this 1930 recording. Duke became quite the expert in how to place the mics so that he could get the right overtones, in this case to evoke a three o'clock in the morning sound. Duke also used to tell stories about what his songs meant, and this one was particularly touching, and the lyrics that were written later had nothing to do with the story, he said. It's just a little story about a little girl and a little boy. They're about eight, and the little girl loves the little boy. They never speak of it, of course, but she just likes the way he wears his hat. Every day, he comes by her house at a certain time, and she sits in the window and waits. Then one day, he doesn't come. Mood Indigo just tells how she feels.
One of these days, I want to do a whole program on Duke Ellington. And if there are any Ellington aficionados nearby, I'd love to bring you on as a special guest. But on to the next Time Life Giants of Jazz album. It's the second last one put out, number 27. And even though the Giants portrayed in the series were supposedly selected by surveying some of the most prominent jazz scholars and critics, it's a mystery how this next relatively obscure pianist made the bill. That being said, the three records by pianist Joe Sullivan ended up being one of my favorites of the series. He was of Irish origin. His original name was O'Sullivan. His career started around 1927 when he played with Gene Krupa, Bud Freeman, Eddie Condon, and the great clarinetist, who also has a feature spot in this Time Life Giants of Jazz series, Frank Teschemacher. Since we just finished talking about Duke Ellington, I'll feature um, uh, Joe Sullivan playing a well-known Ellington tune, I Got It Bad and That Ain't Good, from 1944. One of his techniques was to make a quick fist above the keyboard, then releasing his fingers like thunderbolts. And you'll hear this on the second chorus of this tune. Give a listen.
Joe Sullivan was able to develop an easily identifiable style that other pianists found it nearly impossible to duplicate. It combined the eccentric, out-of-time left-hand figures of Earl Hines and the steady left-hand rhythms of Fats Waller's stride with a powerful right hand that was more economical than that of Earl Hines. Sullivan played with relative restraint and in the process created great dramatic tension in his solos, or so describes his friend and biographer Richard B. Hadlock. You're not going to hear any of that restraint in this next track. It's from 1954, with a group of musicians led by trumpeter Max Kaminsky, who were all quite past their prime and quite drunk. The recording session for Jazz Tone Records was a disaster, and to quote Hadlock again, the jazz renegades of the 20s had become middle-aged men trying to hang on in a world that no longer wanted their music. In this track, three of the musicians dropped out after the first two bars, leaving Joe Sullivan, drummer George Wetling, who plays very unevenly, and bassist Jack Lesberg to carry the whole tune. Partly as compensation for his own loss of speed, Joe Sullivan angrily wants to show everyone that he is no rubber stamp band pianist and that he is still a forceful presence in jazz. As this piece moves to its end, it's almost a parody of Joe Sullivan's playing style with a slamming the keyboard with his palm to bring his rhythm partners into line. The group was called Max Kaminsky and his Windy City Six. The tune is Delmar Rag. Thank you. 
Wow, what a train wreck that was, but still wild and exciting as train wrecks can so often be. Next, I'll go to Time Life Giants of Jazz, Volume 26. I know I should be going back to the beginning and playing Volume 3, but because Volume 3 is Billie Holiday and we've had so many featured vocals already, I want to save her for the next part of this series, give her the special place that she deserves. So instead, I'm going to talk about a clarinet player named Johnny Dodds, who Time Life and the scholars of the roots of jazz with whom they consulted felt deserved an important place. The notes start out by saying that more than any other musician, Johnny Dodds caught, crystallized, and held tenaciously all his life the spirit of New Orleans jazz. He was serious and sober and had rigid standards and chided other musicians who couldn't meet them. He was one of the few who could give Louis Armstrong a run for his money. According to his brother, a drummer known as Baby Dodds, when Johnny was first handed a clarinet as a child, he had a perfect tone. Let's hear that perfect tone. This is a recording where Johnny Dodds plays lead and is the main soloist. Lonesome Blues. Thank you. 
That's Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five from the Time Life 3 record set of clarinetist Johnny Dodds. You heard Dodds on clarinet, Armstrong on cornet and vocal, Kid Ori on trombone, Lil Armstrong piano, and Johnny St. Cyr on banjo. Unfortunately, Johnny Dodds died of a stroke in 1940 at the relatively young age of 48. I'm going to be playing now a track from one more record from the Time Life Giants of Jazz series and then leave you with the promise that there will be more programs utilizing this fascinating collection of records. But before we go to the last artist for today, I want to take a little break and change the subject. If Time Life or somebody else had tried to put together a similar type of series related to early Canadian jazz, it would have been quite the challenge. I mean, in the U.S., there were many giants of jazz who were recorded in the early 20th century. They had Louis Armstrong, Bix Beiderbecke, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Billy Holiday, etc. In Canada, we had Guy Lombardo. Well, that's not totally true. Firstly, Guy Lombardo did play and record mostly in the U.S., even though he was Canadian. And secondly, there were some great jazz artists, many of them black, playing mostly in Montreal and to some degree in Toronto and Vancouver in the early 20th century, but they either weren't recorded or the recordings are pretty hard to find. Let's talk a bit about the recording industry in Canada. Emile Berliner, German-born American, became interested in sound devices as early as 1870, became quite the pioneer, and ended up moving to Montreal and setting up a factory there that included recording devices. And this was in 1899. Now, most of the recording material available was from American sources, and it wasn't until sometime after 1904 that commercial records, still mostly American, even began to be pressed in Canada. In 1914, with the outbreak of World War I and British patriotism, both Columbia Records and uh, Berliner's label began to see a market in first British, then Canadian recording artists. Not that none had been recorded before that, but there wasn't much. Berliner elected to start recording in Montreal, and he launched a line of Canadian recordings bearing catalog numbers in a 216000 series. That was 1916. This effectively launched the actual recording industry in Canada. And by 1918, most major record companies had moved into Canada. I want to play the best known Canadian recording artist of the early 20th century, even if he did later become an American citizen. I mentioned him earlier. I'm talking about Guy Lombardo from London, Ontario. He was said to have made the sweetest music this side of heaven and was generally disparaged by real jazz artists, except for Louis Armstrong, who loved him. I'll play a typical Lombardo track from 1927, Charmaine. In fact, you're hearing it as I speak. Then I'm going to follow it with something really different that he did in 1928 with his brother Carmen conducting and his younger brother, Thebert, doing a rare and terrific vocal. 
It was recorded in Chicago under the name of the Louisiana Rhythm Kings. So here's two in a row from Guy Lombardo, 1927 and 1928, Charmaine, followed by their wild version of You're Nobody's Sweetheart Now. Thank you. 
two in a row from Guy Lombardo. Whoever thought I'd be playing him on Discovering Jazz? I'll finish today's program with Time Life Giants of Jazz record set number 26, trumpet player Bunny Berrigan. First, a record I grew up with. One of my parents' 78 RPM records of Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra, where I would play both sides, Marie and Song of India, over and over. It was recorded in 1937. It's great now to be able to look at the notes from Time Life Records about this song and hear a description of some of the playing. Starts out with Dave Tuff's Tom Tom, and after Dorsey's tightly muted and very smooth trombone takes the first chorus, then the second chorus is given over to Bunny Berrigan. And I have permission to focus on Berrigan's trumpet solo here, where he is featured on two choruses. Rimsky-Korsakov's Song of India, Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, featuring Bunny Berrigan from 1937. Thank you. 
a few more from the Time Life Giants of Jazz series. And I'm so looking forward to featuring the likes of Billie Holiday, Art Tatum, Coleman Hawkins, and Count Basie. But since I don't want this Discovering Jazz podcast to be simply about old swing-era recordings, next week I'll play a few recent CDs that I bought. So tune in to Discovering Jazz, coming your way through Peterborough Independent Podcasters. Final tune, recorded from a 12-inch rather than a 10-inch 78 RPM record, so it's almost five minutes long. Here is Bunny Berrigan on trumpet and vocal with I Can't Get Started. And this is Larry Saitman here, and I can't quite get finished, but I am saying bye for now.
broken hearted Cause I can't get started with you 